Hi everybody. Since the last time I spoke with Pascal, there were a lot of questions that I had that I wanted to go deeper into. And many of you contacted me, letting me know that there were questions that you would like me to go deeper into as well, if I ever had a chance to follow up with them. Well, guess what? We're gonna follow up with them right now in a conversation that's gonna start in a few moments. And this time around, instead of focusing more on the creative impact of artificial intelligence and how all of us who create content will be impacted, I'm gonna shift the focus a bit to address some of the, the questions that we didn't get to before. And these all revolve around Pascal's extremely deep skills as someone who can take an idea and a vision and turn them into products that people love. We're gonna talk about all the various things that go into it, all the go-to-market activities that we typically have to follow. It's gonna be a really fun chat. So sit back and let's get started. All right, Pascal, great to catch up with you for round two. You know, the first one was such a, so much fun that there's just so much more that I want to ask and people have told me they would like me to ask you. So I figured let's just get you back on the call and do another round and trip around this whole fun conversations. It is good to be back. Thanks for having me. Uh, all right. All right. So, you know, one of the things you know, previously we chatted, we spent a lot of time talking about AI assistance and, you know, that whole world that and how it's going to change how creative people build and, you know, create things. But there's another angle to you because there's only one side of what you do though. There are other parts of you that are equally, you know, fascinating. And that is your journey as an entrepreneur. You know, you're someone who's worked at companies, but then you've started your own company and, you know, and done all these things. I've always held this, you know, assumption, you know, could be completely faulty here. I always felt that designers make really good CEOs or make really good early stage employees compared to the traditional disciplines you might think about, like product management or developers or so on. And so I kind of want to pick your brain on that, you know, you having been through all of these things, what do you see as like, you know, the thing that, you know, first of all, am I correct in my assumption? And second, what do you think that makes designers more likely to be better at running companies, especially products that people might enjoy wanting to use? Oh, wow. That is a good question. I'm not confident if designers are all necessarily the best ones to run companies, but I do think that the perspective they bring is, is, is pretty, pretty different to say like your, your classic engineer type or a business type. Um, because I think the designer, I think a great designer, um, is a little more like an artist. And I think artists are really good at articulating the vision. Not just by talking about it, but making artifacts that communicate what the what the thing is, um, or who it's for. And uh, I think when a um, a good artist or designer, which is really also someone that is a communicator, is able to put stuff into a form or artifacts that do communicate the vision, then they can kind of get people behind them and on board, right? And with just a little bit of work, even if they're not doing all the technical work underneath, they can create a picture of the thing or concept out of the thing. Then people can see that, okay, there's a real idea in their head. They're not talking about vague things. There's a way to thread the needle on, uh, you know, creating the, the product or the world that the thing, the thing lives in. And I think like part of design is also, I, I use design and art like pretty interchangeably, at, at least just in the way that I operate. Like I'm not really a pure designer. Like design is just like one thing that I do under maybe a larger umbrella of art. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think it's just a, it's it, there's a real art to communication and, and 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 rallying people around that particular vision. And part of that happens in like um, 
you know, if I was to borrow a word from the book of Disney, like imagineering, right? It's like imagination and kind of engineering at the same time and like pulling things out from the idea space into, into reality. And it's not always practical. Sometimes it's just enough to give people like a sense of the flavor uh, of the thing. And they can put their hands on the, the electricity of the, the vision, I think. Gotcha. So I think the, the storytelling ability that designers have a more natural inclination for gives them a, an edge, at least early on in some of these things. The other thing I was curious about is, you know, maybe I always, maybe it's the wrong people I hang out with, you know, a tough crowd of developers, basically. But I always felt that developers typically, you know, or even me as a product manager, typically focus on like, you know, here's a cool problem. You know, let's see what we can do here. Whereas I feel like designers take a more holistic view and say, okay, you know, that's maybe it's part of communicating it, you know, communicating to other human beings. It's like, what's the human angle to this? Like, you know, would someone really find this interesting or is it something that yeah. we're just doing because it just happens to be, you know, cool technology in all these areas. We just want to do something interesting here. Yeah, you know, I, I honestly, was, I think designers going like, "Oh, it's a cool photo Photoshop brush here. I can't wait to build a company around it." But I've definitely seen cases where, like, here's an API that someone created. I have no idea what it does. Let's just do something random with it, you know. And I'm like, eh, that's <laughs> gonna have exactly the level of success based on the thought process you put into all of this. Yeah, you, you know, honestly, over the years, I've found that um, the gap between when designers and engineers, if they really are two different types, some are, because some people only design, some people only engineer, has sort of smushed together, like culturally, where you do have a good chunk of people who are inside the more insulated bubbles. They work at a traditional software company, or maybe they live in a tech heavy city, such as San Francisco, where I lived for a few years. Um, it's not only engineers that are guilty of it, designers too, who spend a lot of time inside software companies and I say software companies because there are software companies that the end user is software people. And so you get this like funny thing where it's like, we make software for people who make software, who make people who, for people who make software for software, for software, for software, for software. And you start to lose track of, well, what type of person is, is, is using the thing. It's very easy to be inside the bubble and then forget that outside it, there's like normies who, like have never heard of the word API before. Um, you know, they don't know what like a Docker container is. They've never operated a terminal. And maybe the word AI is like just something that um, they've heard in science fiction before. Um, it's, I, I used to believe like d designers had a bit more of a, an edge or a swing, but after doing it for as long as I have and just seeing the, the two edges sort of diffuse into each other, I think they're both kind of in the same the same bucket and it really depends on which area of industry you're in. Some people are just very inside the like, uh, what would you call it? Well, the bubble. <laughs> and then there are some companies that are, you know, a little more designed to serve the pop culture and they're less concerned about like, well, this would be a cool button to throw in here. This API seems like it would be fun to try to come up with an idea for, you know, it's like um, when you're in that, in that, um, that, that bubble method of thinking, there's a lot of trying to create a problem for the thing, like invent a bunch of problems to justify the thing existing. Whereas when you're working with real flesh and blood, like messy people, 
you can just ask them like, what's, what problem are you dealing with? And they'll tell you. And it's, I think the diff between those two things is pretty, pretty broad. So I don't know if that answers the, the question. No, but it, it's at it least, does. It does. Yeah. So, you know, what do you think is the ideal makeup of a, of a company at an early stage for, let's say it's a creative, you know, endeavor, you're building something that you're passionate about and, you know, you want to scale it up. What do you think is the ideal makeup? Man, well, certainly as few people as possible and certainly as many like multidisciplinary people as possible. I think um, people who can, you know, hop between the different tracks of work is great because they can at least empathize and consider like what their other collaborators are going to need to be able to do. Even if it's a designer with a bit of engineering, like understanding then they're existing in the real world. And then like engineers who understand like what's important to a designer and won't be annoyed if they're, you know, tapped on the shoulder to implement a detail or artists who understand a little bit of both of those things. But I, I think all of that like kind of goes out the door. If at the top, there isn't good vision, right? I think that the, 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 the leader, the CEO of the company needs to really be able to express like where everyone is, is heading. And ideally that's the only thing that they have to do. Like in the projects that I work on, like, Eventually I get to a point where I, I try to fire myself out of <laughs> the project as quick as possible by hiring people that are way better at doing the, the, the stuff that I do so I can go off and, you know, think about more of the, the future work. But early on, like I try to do as much of it as possible. And in, in, in recent months, like really rolled the sleeves up on, on engineering myself. I think if you can understand the full stack, then, then you know how to, um, you know, hire in people who can do the work effectively. Yeah, no. And one of the things I always liked about all of your various projects and, you know, companies you've started or you've been a part of is that you're extremely good at generating hype for the products that you ultimately build. <laughs> Even in its very early stages, I'm like, yeah, I can't wait to try this out. Whereas I look at other products will be other people. I'm like, yeah, you know, that's great. I have no interest in it. It's not because the products themselves are not good or not comparable. It's just that your way of getting the message out has been very unique. So can you talk more about that? Like what is the secrets that one needs to have to generate interest for an early stage product before it even is ready for prime time? I think a good chunk of it is, is meme engineering and Funnily enough, there's this this uh, this fella in the software scene who knocked two out of the park in a row recently. Nikita Beer. I don't know if you've seen his his work around. He he made an app called Gas, and then the one before that was oh, I forget. I think it's name, Nikita, right? Yeah, Nikita Beer. Yeah. yeah, he he sold the company. I think it was called TBH. He sold that to Facebook. Correct. Had, got locked up in a non-compete. He wasn't allowed to like work on another product within the space. And then as soon as that four years elapsed, he just made the app again and sold it to Discord. But at the heart of that, I mean, he was very hardcore in growth. Like, I don't know if the products were really designed to have longevity, um, which is a bit different to the way that I try to approach things. But there was a lot of engineering on it. Like, I'd say more of the app was about engineering than it like being, I think maybe on the inside, genius as a, as, as a product itself. Um, and in that it's like, yeah, it's like meme engineering. How do you create an idea that will replicate what's gonna like have the largest sort of network effects? Can you create something that sort of pops off as an atom bomb? For me, 
I like products as like an artistic medium, almost in the same way that like a musician likes to release singles, like music. And then you got to think about how to, how to market it. And I'm a big fan of the art of the stunt. Like what can you do to bind it into pop culture? There was an app that I was, I was working on a, a few companies ago where um, I, I sort of put a bunch of like cult or religious themes around it, but like lighthearted ones. Yeah. And um, the, the mascot of the company was like this uh, all seeing eye. The, and, I remember that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it was, the idea was like, it's your personal God who like creates all these beautiful realms for you to hang out in with your friends. And um, the feeling was, or the idea was if I'm, if I'm forming a, you know, a real cult, uh, I got to have celebrities to endorse it just like real cults do. And so I managed to trick Lindsay Lohan into um, <laughs> recording a prayer video uh, to this God. And then we uh, put it, we put it online as like sort of an ad, but like not really, we didn't really like mention anything about what the ad was. It was just weird enough, right? Whether it was attached to an app or not, just in standalone as like an interesting, strange thing to get people talking. But then people were like, what the frick is this? And uh, they went out of their way to go find like who was who was behind this. We actually spun up a, a, a shell company and um, pretended it was a church. So people would like assume that there was like some greater, like beautiful mind story behind it. But really it was to just get people to come into the, into the app. But by the time they're in it, they're already primed to play within the, the meme space. You know, they were yeah. coming in, they were like, oh, great, uh, God. I'm here to like download the app. Like, how do I get, uh, how do I get blessed? <laughs> you know, they would, they don't, they'd almost like, uh, succumb to or uh, agreed to play the game. And I think when you can make it like a, a meme or a game that other people can get in on, they're like more down to spread it as well, because that's a fun place space for them to bring their friends into without them having to create the thing from the beginning. So I try to make as many things like that where like, you could imagine the story of someone else showing it or, or the story of you showing it to a friend would be just a fun, like uplifting thing. And that in a, in, in a way can just be sort of like a, a little cultural, uh, atom bomb type effect to chain reaction. Yeah. So did you get Lindsay Logan <laughs> to the cameo app or did you have some other back channel that you're able to get her endorsement? On? Oh, that I exploited cameo very early on before they like really stopped you from, you know, using it for corporate types of activities um, and gotcha. then very quickly they uh they clamped down on it but she didn't know that she was recording a um like a an ad for uh, um a, a fake cult i told her that she was um helping us with a video for a friend's stinky little dog named charlie <laughs> and i was able to um splice little bits out of the the, the video and put it into a continuous enough seeming take that people were like what the heck? And yeah. she was just got to come back into the scene after taking a bunch of time off. Um, so there was like, there's a timing thing with some of those memes too, right? It's like, well, who's the perfect celebrity or what's the perfect like topic to, to carry the thing at the moment? Um, yeah. Well, hey, <laughs> I, no, I, the thing is, it is, it is random, you know, and creative. <laughs> so it all worked out. I mean, it's not, not your first time, I think, using celebrities as well. Because I remember using the Keezy app. 
And I remember seeing Reggie yes. walk like, you know, frequently in some way, which was very appropriate because, you know, I think Keithy was a, as a drum music beats kind of an app and then having a musician who is very talented and likely a user of something like that made a lot of sense. Yeah. Reggie was, inc- was incredible to help us with, with distribution. And he, so he's an old, old friend of like us and the, and the company. We uh, described him as our company shaman. And, uh, <laughs> you know, as soon as we had the app together, um, there was a funny sequence of events that happened where we were starting to get some lift on the thing. It was a strange app to be working on amongst uh, the, the current landscape of apps at the time which were social type apps like Facebook and Tumblr and Flickr and all of those like web 2.0 kind of networks were, were in vogue and we were just making a thing for making music. It was pretty pure, very simple, but, um, it's like one South by Southwest, uh, AT&T had, had, just, had seen this thing. They were like, Holy crap. Like this is, this is fresh. App- Apple was like starting to feature us in the, in, in the, um, in the, in the Apple stores, the app was installed in every app around the, uh, sorry, every, every Apple store around the country. And so we were starting to get this cool lift. And then AT&T asked us, would you come to like an installation at South by Southwest? We have like a hundred K or 200 K or whatever, like some pretty crazy amount of money to like do a physical installation. And so in about a week, we worked with another hardware company in New York, um, scrambled them together and we built a giant version of Keezy. And, um, there was this funny threading the needle moment where we were like, well, how are we going to like, how are we going to attract people to come to this thing? AT&T really wanted, um, someone to, uh, demonstrate how to use Keezy and Reggie had already been playing around at the app a little bit. And so, you know, they kind of knew that he was within our circle a little bit. We having some chats back and forth, creative brainstorms and on that same trip in Austin, we, we did two things. One was I directed a live action commercial featuring Reggie to promote the app because he's perfect, right? He can make any sound come out of his body. And then, um, and then we um, had him do a live performance where he stomped around on the giant Keezy and he had a microphone that would beam the, the audio under his feet. And he was just like the perfect spirit, the perfect like distribution for this, this idea. Um, and it, it almost felt like, you know, we take bits of feedback from him about like what is what is working or what needs a little polish or what would make it great for you and because some of reggie's tastes started to make its way into the app including some samples and stuff from him some of his artistic spirit also kind of made its way through it and so that helped push push it forward right it was just like supernaturally aligned it didn't feel like you know michael phelps doing a soy milk uh commercial that one always weirds me out. You, I don't know if they still sell, sell at the grocery stores, but for a while they had um, Michael Phelps soy milk. And all I could think in the back of my head was, oh God, they have milked Michael Phelps. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange brand alignment. But, you know, Reggie with music just made sense. Yeah, I know. Reggie and the, you know, like, I still remember that for, you know, because it just, the stars aligned so well on that one. Great product, great marketing, and the right person to be right up there talking about it. Yeah, that was truly a special one to do. And I, I, I definitely keep that in the back of the head. I mean, definitely fortunate to have some connects to some some heavy hitters. Not everyone has access to, you know, excellent talent like that. But, um, you know, I think there's creative ways around it. There's ways to kind of hack the... the I, I mean, you know, I, I promise not to get too deep into AI again this time around, but there are enough <laughs> things now where you can pretty much have any 
movie characters say whatever you want them to say, and the facial movements and the mouth movements and so on is on point with the words that are coming out of their mouth. And of course, also sounds like them as well. Yeah, I mean, that's also getting some dicey territory too. Because, <laughs> you know, you go after someone's likeness, we're about to enter a pretty strange era as far as access to IP goes, if anyone can just. Yeah, you might have seen those, right? Where, like, I think someone tries to recreate, make Tom Cruise do, like, normal kind of activities by using, superimposing his face and body on, like, on himself, basically. And it almost looks believable. Like, you cannot really tell the difference between, like, is this real Tom Cruise or fake Tom Cruise or Tropic Thunder Tom Cruise, for all we know. Yeah, they, they, um, it was a very popular TikTok account, I think, which was, um, making Tom Cruise. And then, more famously, there was a, I believe there was a recent Anthony Bourdain documentary where they um, they trained a a voice model on on his voice and then used AI Anthony Bourdain to narrate the documentary. Wow, that is trippy. Yeah, and I you know last night I heard a story. I can't say who the actor is, but um, there was a famous voice actor who had passed away recently. Who was involved in the let's say Disney family. And one of my friends, um, has, who's a, a fantastic voice actor, has been um, assisting in training and articulating of, of an AI model to like extend the legacy of this uh, this character and his and his work. So, you know, times are changing as far as the simulation of these characters and personalities go to almost being eternal. <laughs> yeah, strange no. weather, man. So, you know, not to de- go deep into the territory one more time, but getting, <laughs> back to, getting back to apps and so on. One of my favorite apps that, you know, you had worked on was the note-taking app. You know, the one that allows you to take notes, you know, had like a, I'm forgetting the name of it at this point. But it's basically it thing list? Thing list, exactly. Like that was oh, probably my favorite. Man. And I used it way, way, way longer than, you know, than I felt like you probably your metrics even estimated people to use. It wasn't until like cloud syncing was one of those things I couldn't live without. I was like, okay, I need to do something different. But, you know, the iconography, the colors, the spacing, you know, all of these things goes back to my earlier point about like, you know, having a designer being a core part of this from an early on stage because, you know, there are a billion note-taking apps and then every day a billion yeah. note-taking apps come back. But for me, Thing list was like the one I always felt was a gold standard and like my favorite app that I used because I take notes oh, all the time. I almost forgot about Thing List. That is a that is a vintage one at this point, and uh, that was fun to work on. You know, sometimes taking the weirdo designer animated brain and applying it to slightly more vanilla problems um, can unlock some new approaches to to making a thing. Right? Like I, I think. At the time, like there were a bunch of people like doing to-do list apps, but we wanted to do something with a bit more, bit more flavor. And um, yeah, it was nice to make a pretty polished thing. I mean, it, it, I think it was like one of the app, like the few properties we actually like sold, and for not that, not, not that much money. I think it still exists. And I think there's another company that kind of like took over ThingList, and they maintained it a little bit. I don't know if they ever did cloud sync or anything. Um, but yeah, it, it you know, I, I spend a lot of time these days inside game engines and um, 
still doing animation, kind of heavy stuff and 3D things. But, um, and those are, those can be like really challenging spaces to be in because you just the simulation space you have to hold in your mind is, is a lot. You just kind of put in a different mode, right? And, um, but it's all, at the end of the day, it's all computers, right? It's all code. It's all the same kind of yes. stuff underneath, but it's just a very different way to articulate it. And it is fun, honestly, to like come back to the slightly more quote unquote vanilla type problems and be like, well, what if we push it through this lens of the higher order, like thinking, can you, can you make like some of these more typically mundane experiences, um, like have a personality or flavor. And I think those things having personality and flavor humanize them and ends up making them more of a, a humane experience instead of us having to become more computer-like and turn ourselves into robots to be able to interact with computers. I think when software becomes more like a being which has a personality, it's a lot more natural to relate to. Yeah, no, that's that's so true. You know, I think there was a book called, I think it was called Society of Mind that I think it was by, mm. uh, I think, Marvin Minsky that going to, in a deep, detail exactly on this is that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we've been trying to make humans behave more like computers and like how we think and program and speak their language. What if we did the other way around? You know, what if it was the other way around where, you know, we spoke a common language and we trained all the various systems to understand it, and the common language being the humans are more readily, oh, sure. you know, friendly about it. Yeah, I mean, I think even today, code is, um, it's kind of like learning magic spells, even if you know how to engineer it. to the normal person, it's, it's still such a difficult interface and mental plane to have to put yourself in. Yeah, because um, you know, you're always told to like, you know, you want to solve problems in the domain you're trying to operate in, you know, which means a visual task is best done visually, you know, which is why you have so many direct manipulation and all these right. things and tools to make it not like, you know, I'm drawing a rectangle, I'm going to draw a rectangle using a tool that is optimized for drawing rectangles. Whereas coding is still very much a case where if you're drawing a rectangle, you're writing text and not even like, you know, logical text is like bizarre SVG syntax or, you know, or maybe even like direct imperative commands on like canvas, where like literally moving coordinates from one point to another. And I think there's a lot to be done here, even ignoring like low code, no code tools that try to abstract away details, but all these abstractions come with limits, you know, whereas you can't do the things you might want to do because you're blocked by the tool's ability to represent a visual concept into whatever backend language it needs to be ultimately represented in. Yeah, man. I mean, there's so much to have to wrap your head around, I think, to be able to move the medium of software around in an, in an effective way. It's like yeah. the, I feel like every day is that, you know, mind expansion meme, of like the, the galaxy brain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So getting back to one more point, you know, I'm curious, I'm going to put in a spot here. So here are okay. two situations. I'm curious to get your take on what would be the more successful product at the end of it. Mediocre product, great distribution. That is product A. Product B, great product, mediocre distribution. What do you think is a greater chance of success? Well, I think to really answer that question, it comes down to what is the measure of success? If we're talking about 
making the Chet achieve the first one of mediocre product greater distribution for sure. I mean, there's so much, so many things in the world. If we just forget software products, just on earth that crack the distribution piece. Um, that's why the world is full of a lot of crap too. Yeah. And, um, and then a lot of like the, the really excellent things, just if that never cracked distribution, you could consider them a commercial failure, but maybe artistic success. One of the key examples, I, I, I push a lot of things to the Disney lens lately because I've just been doing a really deep dive on like the life of him and he's very upstream of a lot of the stuff that I do. Fantasia was um, one of his like big, pure artistic endeavors. And um, what was the name of the Leopold Stokowski was the name of the musical collaborator, I believe. Um, and he wanted to cover, you know, what really wanted to do an uncompromised, like artistic film, forgetting what would be, uh, he wasn't leaning into what's going to hit it the biggest in the box office, right? It was like, what's going to be the purest expression of the idea. Um, Fantasia now everyone knows about it and it did eventually make Disney money. But when the thing came out, I mean, there's interviews of him talking about it commercial failure, artistic success, right? And I guess it comes down to what is what is important at the time. You know, if we really are measuring Disney as, a, as an artist, um, wildly successful with Fantasia because I think great artists eventually have to work out how to reinvent themselves after a while. It's very easy to get stuck in your patterns and then you kind of lose a, you lose your unique perspective because the rest of the world almost kind of catches up. And so Fantasia was one of those reinvention moments for him where he had to really turn a lot of his, his thinking inside out to get that, that film out. And it certainly inspired a lot of future work that happened uh, at, at the studio. But did it make the studio like a good amount of money? No, it like lost a lot of money. Like, and so it didn't have the right distribution. Um, and it also just... it it. It was too ahead of its time. There's a timing thing on things too, I think. Yes. I, there's a right time for ideas to land. And um, yeah, I think it just really comes down to, to, to what's important. I think that he wouldn't have like done, I sense he wouldn't have like done Fantasia another way. You know, that's like one of those notches in the belt you want to like, you want to keep. Like you, the, 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 the stuff you learn getting to work on a project like that uncompromised is invaluable, even though it costs millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's something I always hear about a lot of creatives who are creating shows for Netflix specifically saying like, yeah, Netflix gives them more freedom to do what they want to do, which may or may not work out. I don't know how it works out now, given that, you know, they're being more constrained in like, you know, funding and quality. But at least like a few years ago, it was typically the case where like, if you have an idea that is unproven, but you're passionate about it, there's a platform that will be willing to support it. And it was all by almost Netflix. Right. Have you seen uh, Midnight Gospel? Have you heard of it? I have not. Let's see if I heard of it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a visual person. So I might've seen the actual, you know, um, artwork on it. And... So Midnight oh, Gospel yeah, I've is seen the, I've seen the trailer. I've seen the cover art for it. Yes. I've not seen it though. So the fellow behind it is a, is a man of the name Pendleton Wood and his most famous uh, creation is Adventure Time, 
which I'm sure you've heard of that show, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it did very well for Cartoon Network because like, I think one of the most popular properties at the, at the time, and it did quite a number of seasons. Um, and I don't know the full backstory of how the Netflix deal happened, but just like my, I'd say like my analysis as, as an artist and then looking at how this thing got produced, it was clear that there was sort of like, well, Pendleton, you freaking crushed it on, um, on Adventure Time. Come to Netflix and do whatever the hell you want. And you, you watch the thing and it is so freaking bizarro and weird. Like it's this, it, it features this kid who puts his head in this like weird, um, like honestly, like space vagina looking thing. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it represents some like reproductive organ and he puts his head in it and it's this like futuristic VR simulator and it's yeah. very psychedelic and he beams into the bodies of these characters and they go on this super lucid, fluid, trippy adventure. Every time he puts his head inside the, the machine and, um, the amount of detail you can just tell that they were just having fun with it and not worrying about well we need to be economic or this shot like doesn't make sense here or this would be expensive there was just a sense of wow they just let him play and, and create whatever he want i mean I'm, I'm sure it's probably like have x million dollars and just go to town and, and just turn it in whenever the things complete i would guess that it was probably something like that we have this feeling of well this is not a like a a true commercial product while Netflix, you know, is distributing it. I don't think he was trying to make something that would, um, punch in the same class as, uh, adventure time did. But anyway, yeah. I highly recommend checking out, um, in that gospel because you watch it and you're like, okay, there's no way if this was put in front of a contemporary, like modern audience, just on one of the main channels or cartoon network, people would get it. They'd be like, this is, this is from another planet. But I do think, that midnight gospel in maybe 10 years or 20 years when I think the world itself becomes more psychedelic with psychedelia making its way into the population, like, like psychedelic mushrooms and all all the other things that are becoming legalized. I think like you'll, there'll probably be a bit more of a cultural awakening and then they'll be ready to receive an idea like that. And they'll just be like, that it'd almost be like a classic. They'd be like, Oh yeah, of course <laughs> these ideas we, we think about already, but you know, artists are often out ahead of, of, of the rest of the pack. There's very sensitive types of people. And so they often get ideas beamed into their head before everyone else. And I think another part of the job is like working out when to, they get to choose when to release it amongst the, 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 the rest of the folks who are both artists and, and, and non-artists, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I think my appointment earlier about timing is such a core part of, you know, it's a, it impacts anything that we typically do, but even an artist specifically, because, you know, as a, I forget, you know, I, I read a lot of articles and books and so forth. It's hard for me to keep track of what I read and when. There's a great article I was reading a short while ago where it talked about if it took like an automotive design from today, you know, cutting edge and all of these things, and it took it back, like I said, 20, 30 years, They'd have been like, this is garbage. This is absolutely awful. We're going to do whatever we think the future, what 2022 might look like and look very right. different. Even though if you look at it today, we're like, wait, that looks like something from the Jetsons. It's really terrible. And there's something that came out of it, which is really like, sometimes ideas are so far ahead that even if it is good, the timing of when it's introduced has to play a big role because a great idea introduced way too early 
could not only sabotage that idea from that moment, it could potentially sour that idea from ever becoming a reality. And then an idea that came out of it was Clippy, you know, the old Microsoft Office. Oh, yeah. Where, yeah. you know, it gave you text-based assistance on contextually on what you were doing at the time. Execution, there's a lot to be desired, but that pretty much stopped any kind of discussion on that space for so long until the yeah. people of the era probably don't remember it anymore. Like, you know, you and I are probably the only people right now on this planet who are talking about it and remember it, you know, at this very moment, whereas for many other things, it's still part of the zeitgeist. And so that always struck with me, you know, when I have like an interesting <laughs> idea and I'm like, okay, people like this idea now, is it because my presentation of the idea was bad or the idea is just too far ahead of its time? Yeah, I think it can often read as culture shock to the, the people who are not quite ready for it yet, you know? Um, if you're imagining like a, a weird futuristic flying car coming in just being dropped in right now, it's just like too much for some people to wrap their heads around, right? Because that means it's, it's challenging their assumptions, their base assumptions on so many other things. And I think some people or most people can only tolerate so many of their core beliefs or principles challenged at a, at a given time, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I do the Cybertruck as an example of this. You know, when it was first introduced, yeah. you know, some people were like, this is hideous, absolutely awful. Some people were like, it's the greatest right. thing ever. And most of the people probably played the Halo video games where it reminded them of the Warthog. They're like, oh, this is like a Warthog. I, I got to have it right now. But then yeah. two years later, now I was like, yeah, that totally makes sense. And then we see like other competing car companies doing equally blocky kind of looking things. It's just like, yeah, it's just part of the norm. And no one remembers at that time how much backlash and so on that came out of this whole thing. But also part of me is like, does it really matter? You know, the, the product is compelling and the vision of it is, I don't think it's actually out. So I don't think it's actually outside of a handful of people have used it, but the vision was so compelling that it was able to overcome so much of the negativity and the headwinds it faced at that point. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this underlying like mechanic that is still built into our like monkey brains, which is for better or worse, because it's probably a defense mechanism, the fear of new things, <laughs> right? And then it can seem alien. It's like something from an outer tribe. It's like going to challenge everything. You want to throw stones at it or smash it into a million pieces. <laughs> yeah. And I like, definitely didn't hurt that. It definitely doesn't hurt that, you know, Elon also happens to be like doing SpaceX and so on. So like, wait, you know, so your mind is like on two ends here. It's like, wait, he he's, it has a vision and the team around it to take rockets right. up and land the rocket back down again. And yet he gives us <laughs> this. There's something wrong with right. me, right? You know, I'm the one who's not able to see this because why would someone like that, you know, lead us? in the wrong path, the wrong design. So there's a yeah. cult of personality angle that plays a, a large role in this as well. Whereas it was one thing if like some random person came with a Cybertruck versus here's the person behind SpaceX and Tesla in general and you know other endeavors like the flamethrower, you know, basically doing this. So I think those are all like goes back to the early stages of like building hype and all the various factors that kind of go into it. Yeah, I mean, I think he definitely is a visionary as like, I mean, it is crazy to, 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 to look at, obviously, the efforts he's made sending shit to space, setting up infrastructure, and then being a huge troll on, uh, on Twitter. And then yeah. you have to somehow hold all of that in your head and make a like binary evaluation of rocket man good or rocket man bad. It's just it's way more complex than that. Yeah. And you've got like a very complex uh, person 
who uh, has a godly amount of uh, resources um, twiddling his finger in, uh, you know, our, our, our simulations and we had stuff, stuff to happen, but yeah, man, it's, it's, it's been a real roller coaster to watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one thing, you know, we're getting close to like the end of our time here. I want to, you know, check, ask one question. What does success mean for you? You know, you've done a lot of really interesting things in my 20 years that I've known you, and they've all been very, very different in some cases. You know, that's a common theme of that, you know, you have an idea that you want to get out to the world. But beyond that, you know, what motivates you? What are your plan? What are your you know, 10 years from now? What do you, what does success for you look like? I think there's two things. One is I would hope I can just continually continue doing what I get to do every day. A lot of it is play and a lot of it is to really have the privilege of being an, an, an artist. Ideally, I'm just doing as much of that as possible and, 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 and no other distractions. But the second is it, it'd be great to really build something that, that lasts. And I don't know exactly what the form of that is. Um, some of it might be like like the, the feeling of legacy, you know, for the same reason people have kids and whatnot and they want to continue on their lineage. But um, I just think in a world of, of, of technology and, and software, we've just normalized working on things that are incredibly ephemeral. And um, the idea of making something or creating something that lasts longer than a, a few years to me is such an exotic or out there idea if we just consider where culture is today the tension spans are so short um but working on something that could really span a lifetime or a decent chunk of a lifetime um it's really really appealing to me because you you get people to have a, a different relationship to the thing it's less about the quick little hits and the dopamine spikes and more like this is a thing that I hold with me or carry in my, my life or an experience or an idea. Um, it'd be cool to create a thing that is that, that meaningful sometime, but, um, not in a rush to do it. I think it'll happen naturally, but yeah, that would, that would be it. Some build something that lasts and, um, continue getting to just create art all the time. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great answer there. Thanks, man. <laughs>